Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. What we're about is good conversation. And on Friday, you have to sum up and get ready for next week. We've got a terrific uh, team with us uh, right now. Morse Reed with us, John Norman with us uh, as well. And now Anthony Gardner joins. He's a former United States ambassador to the European Union. We are thrilled he's with us. He speaks the six languages I wish I could speak. And he joins us uh, this morning as well. What's the secret to learning five languages? What is the secret? Having an Italian mother helps, and okay. marrying always. a Spaniard That's always also a helps. Great thing. Okay. So those are two secrets. Having an Italian mother uh, is number one. Always helps. That's what helps. Okay, we can stop the show right now <laughs> and move on. Morris Reed saved me. Okay, we, Anthony, we are here, and Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum has decided we're having globalization 4.0. Has there been a shift in the concept of globalization in politics and in economics? Oh, I think there has been. There's been a move in many countries, not only in the United States, but in Europe, of, of being inward-looking and basically challenging the, the precepts of an open world trading system and a rules-based multilateral order. That's what's now on the agenda. Megan Desai talks about the death of the liberal order, as he puts it. Define that. Define the Washington consensus, the liberal order, and how it's changed. Well, certainly the importance of rules, like the WTO, of the multilateral system, international law, as a way to deal with disputes. And now one country after another, not only the United States, has invoked national security exemption, but others, Russia and Saudi Arabia, are now saying, once we invoke our own interests, national security otherwise, rules don't apply. Judges can't rule on disputes. That undermines a lot of the basis for a free open trading system. Morris, are we less multilateral now than we were the pre-Trump election? Yeah, we're much more personality driven. Uh, but there are opportunities in personality driven you know, situations. If you look at uh, some of the strongmen, this is where when we, at the beginning of the Trump administration, we advised our clients that if you really wanted to get close to him, you need to appeal to his ego. Right. That doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get everything you want. But having the seat at the table uh, is important, particularly when you're dealing with a guy that looks from his vantage point first. So are we less? Absolutely. But are there opportunities? For sure, there's opportunities. OK, but, but do gatherings like Davos actually um, give ammunition to the populists? Well, they might uh, indeed, but I think Davos has tried to open up to just not the you know not just the business community, but others, NGOs. They've been doing it for a while, and they're continuing to emphasize the importance of other stakeholders in the system. So they are opening up and listening. But Davos wants the populists there as well. They want Donald Trump there. They want the, the, the Erdogans and Victor Urban. Because when you ignore them, this is how things fall apart. You have to engage. Whether someone wants to go left or someone wants to go right, you still have to engage them because there are always opportunities to make a deal. Uh, and when people decide to ignore him, this is why the Democrats are having a lot of problems. They're ignoring him instead of engaging him. They're getting emotional about him than looking strategically. When you look at opportunities and focus solely on that, you get things done. Ambassador? Yeah. Oh, I think that's absolutely right. This is a very fine, difficult line for the Democrats and others to, 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 man, to manage. How do we look and be tough and to engage with well, the European allies and, and say to the Chinese, you need to reform, but at the same time defend the, right. the system that we built up together? 
right? And, and the, the system has benefited us beyond any other country, but we're not making that case in a good this way. This is really important, this idea of be tough and the definition of be tough, and it's an honor to go to you, Morris. I think of Ron Brown as a tough kid out of Harlem. He had some opportunities, and then he landed at Middlebury College, the only black guy in Vermont, from what I could tell Absolutely. at the time, and he learned along the way a pragmatic approach, which was the Ron Brown method. You've done the same thing in your career. Where did the pragmatic approach go to an America in shutdown that won't even attend Davos? It, well, it, it started when people start to focus on personality. Selfishness as well. Personality-driven politics instead of getting things done for people. Listen, when we were in government, we did a lot of things. We didn't have to beat our chest about them. We got them done for the benefit of things. Now you have a situation where people are very focused on themselves first right. uh, and ultimately where things go. But, Morris, it also gets people to vote when they haven't voted in 10 years. Right. Well, so Twitter, social media is a tool to get people to vote. This is very interesting, and this is an interesting point. Hillary Clinton still got more votes than Donald Trump. This is what people keep forgetting, right? The reason she lost is because she ran a populist campaign instead of an electoral college campaign. So this whole thesis about being on Twitter and all these crazy things, just because you're on Twitter and you have a lot did, of following the, don't mean people Did the vote. 47 Democrat candidates for 2020 learn anything from the election? Are you going to run for president? No. Everybody else is in. <laughs> no, I like did the they, Did they learn from Secretary Clinton's debacle? No, of course not. Uh, and what they're doing is going too far to the left. So you look at some of these younger rising stars where everyone's saying, uh, we got to be on Twitter, we've yeah. got to act like Trump. Exactly. That's not how you win. You know how you win elections? You talk about issues that matter. You put together strategies that matter. And this is why the Democrats Ambassador? have to have a strategy in the House or they're going to lose. I agree. The, look, the acid test is, are we making America stronger? Are we supporting the interests of our exporters, our farmers and our ranches and so forth? My view, my conclusion about the, the Trump tactics is no, we are not. I'm all for tactics that work. I'm all for opening up the Chinese market, bringing more cases WTO yeah. with our European allies. I, I just think the American electorate will have to ask the question, are these tactics working? Okay, well, no one from the U.S. administration this is why. Dallas. This okay, is exactly why I believe it's going to be shut down for six months, mm. because the That's very people that, that you outlined that this is supposed to help, it's hurting them. They haven't psychologically gotten there. Well, It'll take six months. John Norman, give us the background mm. here. On the, take a Green Book IMF approach on the global <laughs> financial stability, given his comment of a shutdown <laughs> for six months and the tensions that the ambassador speaks it's, with. It's do we have a system that can withstand this? Uh, it depends on the country and it depends on the type of shock. I think what makes a lot of these discussions highly relevant for markets is every election is not just about policies, it's about the system itself. And so that's why you have this pricing in of regime changes and actual re regime changes yeah. which are coming through with Trump and also with, with Brexit. These are things that we haven't seen in, in 30 or 40 years in the global economy and that's why you're getting tremendous repricings of markets around a lot of these events. John, what's relevant for markets in Davos? So President Trump is not coming, no one from his administration is coming. The French president isn't coming. Theresa May had to cancel it because she's negotiating a possible plan I'll be for there. Brexit. Um, Tom's not going to move the markets. So what are you looking for? Well, my guess is the big stuff is happening off the slopes, meaning it matters what the U.S. and China are going to be saying to each other outside of Davos over the next few weeks leading up to this March 1st Central deadline. banks? Central banks, I think, are acting in a... Uh, uncoordinated fashion, but in the same direction. I mean, they're all turning dovish, but not because they've gathered in one place and decided this is the right policy systemically. It's because it's the right policy for each individual economy. We've got a choice. We've got to go, or we can extend this conversation three hours. Go. Yes, should it be? If Two minutes. Want, if they want to make news, they should be focusing on who should be the head of the World Bank, and they should make sure it's a woman, and that'll right. matter.
All right, actually, that's the, the a, an interesting in conversation. They're FaceTiming me and they say, will you guys shut up? <laughs> Tony Gardner, former U.S. Ambassador to the EU, Morris Reed of Mercury Partners, and John Norman of J.P. Morgan. Let's bring in Julian Emanuel, BTIG Chief Equity and Derivative Strategist. Good morning to you, Julian. Your take on the trade story, please. Uh, well, look, so China is coming to Washington uh, at the end of the month. So in our view, everything between now and then is probably just to and fro, jockeying for position. The negotiations are going to happen. We expect at some point heading towards March, there's going to be favorable, uh, um, not necessarily resolution, but certainly uh, favorable news uh, that's going to ease tensions. Julian, despite the denial, we got a taste of what it would mean for the market, both in equity and in foreign exchange, quite clearly positive for stocks and negative for the US dollar. To what degree do you think that the trade story can drive things sustainably through 2019? Well, it, it actually can be a very profound positive. The, the story of the fourth quarter of, of 2018 was one of just intense negativity. And clearly, uh, the frictions with China really did, you know, compound what were already other items, um, including this whole idea that the global slowdown was certainly very much caused by these trade frictions, uh, the disinflation story. Now, literally, you've gone from the glass half empty to the glass half full. People find themselves underinvested. Things look better. The Fed is, is really eased off, and we think that's a material positive. Good news is now starting to become good news, and we're seeing stocks respond accordingly. Some people are pushing back, Julian. They say whether a deal is sufficient to underpin sentiment in the long run, that remains questionable because what we really need to see is the data in China stabilise. And what we haven't seen so far is exactly that. You can have the sentiment improve, but do you have the fundamentals improve simultaneously, Julian? Uh, There's no question about the fact that the data does need to improve uh, in China. And obviously, you know, part of what we as global investors have to deal with is that there's always a a bit of a, a view that the data is somewhat opaque in China. But if you look at how the last year has developed, it really has sort of trended in, in a classic way that global recessions, uh, stock market tops, and then ultimate recoveries off of stimulus tend to proceed. The question is, is, is China willing to do sort of whatever it takes stimulus-wise to really move their economy forward we think that ultimately, as the year unfolds, the answer is likely to be yes. Well, the market is also making that conclusion. The market pricing increasingly for a stability story emerging in China and positioning for that as well. Julian, how do you convince people that this is more than just a relief rally after an ugly December? Well, truthfully, this is one of these times, John, where essentially, as investors, we are paid to invest. And the price action of the last three to four weeks is telling an investor that that conditions are better, certainly more favorable than was appeared at, at the end of the year. And essentially what we have, particularly after the S&P crossed through that 2600 level, is pressure to perform, which I might add is very rare this early in the year. And that's likely something that's going to cause momentum 
to continue to move forward. Julian, that's the international story that we've spent the first five minutes of the program talking about. Let's talk about the domestic story here in the United States. Is it the shutdown shaping the market story eventually, or is the market shaping the shutdown? And the reason I ask this is because we've seen several reports and a ton of speculation that the president is comfortable with the length of the shutdown and its impact on the U.S. economy, just so long as the market holds up. So is the shutdown going to hit the market, or is the market essentially shaping the shutdown, Julian? Which one is it? Well, if you look at past shutdowns, they tend to have very little effect on the market. But what's potentially different this time is because the measures of sentiment, the confidence measures were so elevated for such a long time in 2018, and then along came the fourth quarter, and those measures started to come off, you know, you're at a point where, yes, obviously people are underinvested. Yes, the economy looks better than everyone expected, but it's very important to keep confidence elevated, really to keep economic activity sort of moving along. And in that respect, you know, obviously, both the Republicans and the Democrats seem to not be carrying out the will of the people by keeping the government closed. We think ultimately that will resolve itself as well. But it really is one of those things where uh, the disconnect between the government and, sh- and, and the, the, the stock market should remain that way. And, and we did a lot of work that shows that gridlock is not positive for markets. You just have this sentiment extreme in the fourth quarter, and you're seeing a rally that makes sense whether there is or is not a continued government shutdown. Uh, Julian, there is a belief that the Fed is in a holding pattern until the market has sounded the all clear. I think it's morphed into something a little bit more than that now, Julian, because I don't think we're going to get a clean month of data for the US economy for several months now, are we? The Federal Reserve surely can't think about moving without a clean month of economic data, or two or three for that matter, for the US economy. No. And and look, if you look at the president's own economists, their estimates uh, of how much the economy uh, could slow based on the government shutdown are actually somewhat higher uh, than private estimates. And and in that regard, you know, we think the Fed, we take uh, Chairman Powell at his word in that public appearance on January the 4th. We actually don't believe that there's going to be a rate hike uh, this entire year. And actually, if we're wrong, we think that the economy will, will surprise to the upside, not only in the U.S., but globally as well. The, the Fed saw what happened in the fourth quarter. The last thing they want to do is precipitate a recession. There's sufficient geopolitical risk such that it makes even more sense to be patient. So, Julian, the Federal Reserve is going to be more accommodative. And the final point I want to explore is whether Washington, D.C. and the political story can also be accommodative at the same time. We've had a massive tailwind for this market from the tax cut. There was some hope that the story would shift towards some kind of bipartisan push around infrastructure. A headlines just crossed from Reuters saying that the Trump administration, together with cabinet officials, have discussed infrastructure. Is that a pipe dream, Julian? Uh, well, in, in the current Washington climate, anything with the phrase bipartisan is, is probably uh, somewhat excessively hopeful. That having been said, uh, you know, as an incumbent, whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, you're going to get to the middle of the year and you're going to see that the next election cycle is close at hand. So from that regard, 
you could have action moving towards infrastructure later in the year, particularly if the economy and the tax receipts hold up better than expected, such that the deficit doesn't continue blowing out. Hey, Julian, love the piece of research that just crossed across my desk from, uh, from my team, from you and the team over at BTIG. The wall is built, but you're not talking about the wall on the southern border. Is the good news enough to keep on climbing? And from what you've said so far, I can conclude, Julian, that you think it is. BTIG, Chief Equity and Derivative Strategist, joining us here in New York, Julian Emanuel, to run us through some of the price action. There are times where a book comes across a desk where you say, okay, we're going to talk about economics and international relations and the markets, and we're going to promote John Farrow's The Real Yield. And there's other times we have to just rip it up and talk about the book. We'll do that in a moment. Pippa Malgram joins us, of course, uh, on international economics. She uh, served under uh, the younger George Bush and uh, joins us now. Pippa, just quickly here on international economics. Klaus Schwab is trotting out the idea this year of globalization 4.0 hyphen what it means and how it could benefit us all that pushes massively against the zeitgeist the populism which says wait a minute globalization is not benefiting all doesn't it yeah but i agree with Klaus schwab on that one and i think people are underestimating how much innovation is occurring and how many people can participate and be in that innovation uh, so I have a very optimistic outlook for the world economy yeah. at the moment, I have to say. How is globalization different from Joseph Stiglitz's discontent in his book of a decade ago, Globalization and Its Discontent? So uh, Joseph's view was there were all these people being left behind. I think what we're actually is that there's a community of people who can't get on board with where the world economy is going, but that doesn't mean that they have to be left yeah. behind. So, for example, automation, everybody assumes automation robotics equals unemployment. But, in fact, what we're seeing is since 1804 and the introduction of the very first robotic, which was the Jacquard weaving loom, we've had nothing but more employment. In fact, record employment in China, record employment in the United States, in spite of, or in fact, I would argue, because of it. So then the issue isn't that they're left behind because they can't. It's because they won't let the door yeah. open. So here's my question for CEOs. When's the last time you hired someone who didn't have a college degree? Because those people are not stupid. They're just not allowed in. And that's yeah. the problem. Um, I, I usually, folks, here, I continue with Pippa on economics, finance, investment. But Pippa, you've hit the home run with Chris Lewis with your new book, The Leadership Lab. Folks, this is a revolutionary book. It reads 200 pages. It feels like 800 pages because it is so dense with bursted one-page and two-page thoughts. Like it'll go from a booming stock market to it's the same whole world over, living in the present but destroying the future, et cetera, et cetera. Pippa, you opened the leadership lab with what every single listener feels, and that is the information overload today. How do you move forward given the information overload today? So the first thing is everybody's so analytical, and they have to be more parenthetical. And what that means is 
less focused on the data and more focused on how people are feeling, less on the, the numbers and more on looking across the landscape and understanding what's the zeitgeist. And I think this is something that a lot of our business leaders and political leaders yeah. aren't actually very good at. They're kind of disconnected from zeitgeist. Chapter A, you go to Richard Edelman. Folks will be speaking, I believe, with Mr. Edelman and his Edelman Trust Barometer. We do that every year in Davos. It's my it's my must-read of the year. Just fabulous 56 pages from Edelman. And you go right where Richard Edelman is, Pippa Malgram. You say, can we trust our leaders? How's our trust measurement with our leaders right now? I'm looking at Brexit, and I'm looking at a shutdown. It's not going very well, and it's like the only category of leadership where public trust has remained high, interestingly, is the military. And so definitely our leaders need to change how they're interfacing with the public. What's interesting is they still feel entitled to the public's trust instead of that they have to earn it. That's a totally different mindset. Pippa, you end your book with what's been the heart and soul of my work at Bloomberg, which is the ahistorical society and a complete understand a misunderstanding of history. I would, you know, suggest parenthetically, folks, it's worse in America than it is over here in England. Are are we getting more historical now with the crisis ten years ago and with the political crisis now in so many nations? Are we beginning to learn our history? You know, I'm not sure that we are. I think what happens instead is a new generation of both business and political leaders is emerging, and they have a new take on how we solve problems. We just saw that in the election of uh, all of these new members of Congress, a lot of women, mostly yeah. people who had no political background. So instead of going back, what we're doing is going forward. And the people who are trying to live in the past in a nostalgic environment are slowly right. but surely being eased off stage. <clears throat> Pippa, one final thought, and this I think, folks, is really subtle. In office, but not in power. The leadership presumption of winning a democratic election, but you're not quote unquote in power. Discuss that. Yeah, and I think this is the thing that everybody feels is like, I've got a boss upstairs, he's, he's in office, but he isn't in power. He doesn't actually know what's happening in the company or in the country. And what we need is for people to be in office who have power, but that has to be earned. And so the book heavily describes how you can restore yeah. the trust in your employees, your clients, your customers, your voters. Can't say in enough your of, leadership. Well, I can't say enough about this as an airplane book. And folks, I'm not going to mince words about it. The Leadership Lab was built to be downloaded on Kindle, where you dip into it, dive into it, just so Pippa Malgram and Chris Lewis could get your brain going on some of the linkages here of media communication technology with what Pippa's so good at, which is just fundamental economics. Pippa Malgram, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. The Leadership Lab, I'll put that out on social right now. John, I'm going to bring in Roger Boodle, but you lead it off with Mr. Boodle because I don't know where John Farrell wants to go. John, uh, Roger Boodle and Capital Economics, 1% EU GDP in this Brexit mess. Well, maybe Roger can start by explaining to us where we are in this Brexit mess right now. What's happening, Roger? 
Well, we are in a mess. Uh, I don't really know what's going to happen. Clients are always asking me, and it could be a whole load of things. Maybe we get a full, clean Brexit. We leave without a deal. It's possible. And maybe we don't have a Brexit at all. That's possible. We may have a general election, another referendum. We may have Mrs May ousted. You name it. Umpteen possibilities. Umpteen. I think we get to Plan B Monday. And I believe John Farrow told me, Roger, that Mrs. May is speaking to European leaders. How does she speak to them after that defeat the other day? I don't know. Quite frankly, I don't know why she hasn't resigned. Uh, she hasn't got, I think, anything more to say. They apparently have not got anything more to give. So I think this is all going to be, a, I'm afraid, a completely pointless exercise. Okay, well, then we're going to get to Plan B on Monday. I have no idea what's going to happen there. And then we stagger to March 29th and all the rest in. Roger Boodle is a grizzled pro on this. What are you watching within that path? Well, of course, you know, you have to seasonally adjust for me because I'm a Brexiteer. I support Brexit. Um, What am I looking for? Well, from my point of view, you see, actually, if there's no agreed alternative, the, the legal default position is that we leave on the 29th of March, you know, primary legislation has been passed in the House of Commons to that effect. In order to stop it, then the government has got to coalesce on some other thing and actually have that passed in the House of Commons. As things stand at the moment, I can't see what that thing will be, unless it's actually to delay or pull Brexit altogether. Let's go to economics, Roger Boodle. Capital economics on the United States economy. How's the U.S. doing? Well, it's doing extremely well uh, up to now. I mean, I think you can begin to see signs of things slowing. And indeed, we do think the economy will slow a fair bit. A variety of reasons. First of all, the Fed's rate rises that we've had so far. And then also the fading effects of the fiscal boost from President Trump. All that should, I think, lead to some sort of slowdown. And, you know, we are getting now, I think, a pretty convincing picture of a slowing world. At the moment, the U.S. sticks out like a sore thumb as being different. But I don't think that can last for a long time. If the world really is slowing, then I would affect that also to flow into the U.S. and cause the U.S. to slow as well. What will central bankers do? I mean, if you've got a slowing uh, theme and capital economics stunning 1% real GDP call uh, for Europe, I'm looking at weak nominal GDP, weak animal spirits. Do you just pencil in persistent, chronic, forever negative interest rates in Germany? I think probably you have to. For, forever is a very big word, but for the foreseeable fair, future, fair. yeah. Uh, I mean, I think my own position is that the I, euro is not going to be sustained. Okay. You know, I, I don't want to sound like Ambrose Evans Pritchard who's writing, you know, wonderful thematic pieces on Europe. But how does a banking system sustain and prosper and do societal good with chronic negative interest rates? I, I, that's in none of the textbooks I looked at. Yeah, of course, it's an aberration and it's there because the European economy is in a mess and it's in a mess, in my view, primarily because of the euro, which should never have been formed. And I think both Europe and the world will be better off if the euro were disbanded. That's the problem. And of course, the European leaders are still staggering on trying to patch the whole thing up and hoping for the best. Then how how do you sell? I mean, I granted, Mr. Johnson spoke today, and I'm talking here, folks, about a populism where Mr. Johnson has, from what I can tell in my reading, a very narrow part of the English-Wales 
population and certainly of the United Kingdom as well. He wants to expand that audience, I believe, or take fractured labor politics. They want to stabilize and expand their audience. I don't hear anybody reaching out to expand audiences, do I? Well, politically, I'm afraid this really is a mess. And the British people voted to leave the European Union. It was fairly decisive, 52 to 48. But our political leaders in Parliament are sharply divided and they none of them connect really very well across the whole of the country, which is your point. They have their supporters. They also have their strong yeah. opponents. Well, this has been too short. Roger Boodle, thank you so much. With Capital Economics, and I can't say enough, whatever your politics, the terseness, of his essays in the Telegraph make for must uh, reading as uh, well. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.